Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And now we are going to listen to a classic episode. This episode originally aired on August 12th, 2013. It is called How BitTorrent Works. So we actually get down to the bottom of how torrents work and what's the big deal about it and why is it so controversial and is it at its heart illegal? All those sort of questions are the things we ask in the, and try to answer in this episode. Hope you guys enjoy it. To start off, we kind of need to talk about just how you would typically get a file. Right. How, how files are transferred, period, at all. Right. Under so the normal process, yeah, by either um, by by any of the protocols that you would use over the internet, be they uh, FTP or HTTP. Yep, that's file transfer protocol or hypertext transfer protocol. Excellent mm. acronyms, huzzah! Yeah. Uh, so traditionally, your your computer, uh, which in this scenario we call the client, yep, is going to contact a a host computer, a server, mm-hmm. in order to to say, hey, I want that thing. Exactly. Yeah, whether that thing is a web page, so if your web browser can be a client, yeah, that thing could be a web page, that thing could be a music file, it could be a, a movie file, it could be uh, an email, it all depends upon whatever. Any piece whatever. of content, yeah, right, yeah. That, that you want to get. Um, the server would then send the file to your computer according to whichever protocol you are using. Right, and it's using uh, the, the, the basic set of rules that we all know from the internet, the idea of everything's in packets, those packets travel through different routes, and then they get reassembled on your computer. But yeah, it's essentially a one-to-one relationship, right? I'm asking the the server to send me something. The server sends something to the client. Done. Done. And, and you know, the, the speed with which this can happen depends on the amount of traffic on the server, the size of the file. Yeah, so let's, let's boil this down to an analogy. All right, so Lauren, you are a server. I am. Yeah, so now you have entered into the... Uh, the service industry, you are a server in a coffee shop. Okay. Okay. You serve coffee. I would be terrible at that job. All right. right. Sure. Go ahead. Very clumsy. But, but let's, let's imagine, Lauren, that this is a reality where you're not terrible at your job. You're actually pretty good. You can serve up to three people simultaneously. Wow. Yeah. You're so amazing, but only three people. And, uh, and the amount of time it takes you to produce the order for the customer depends upon what they ordered, like what size of it and how complicated is the drink. Obviously, these things will factor into how long it takes you to prepare it. But you can still handle up to three. But then there's a rush, right? Like, uh, I don't know, there's some hipster band is in town and everyone needs their coffee. So they all rush the coffee shop at the same time. And now you've got 20 people asking you to make very complicated drinks, but you can only serve three at a time. And these drinks are getting progressively more complicated and larger things start to slow down. So that person who's, you know, 17 people back feels like they're waiting forever to get a coffee. And they're thinking, what's the big deal? It should only take... It's just a coffee. It should just take two minutes. I should be in and out in two minutes. And instead, I've been sitting here for 15 minutes and the line's barely moved. That's the same thing we experience with this traditional approach if you're talking about a single server hosting a lot of files, a lot of clients contacting the server for the files, and those files are big. It just means that things can get bottlenecked and slow down. Mm-hmm. So there were some different approaches to trying to figure out how to make this uh, more streamlined. And put one way is to just increase broadband speed, right? So sure. essentially, if you're talking about the Internet being a series of tubes, 
That's it's, it's bigger, bigger, longer bigger tubes. tubes, more tubes. Yeah, bigger tubes and more tubes. Yeah, those are your two choices, right? You make them bigger so that you can shove more stuff through the tubes, or you make a lot more of them so that there are new ways for it to pass through. But you're still kind of bottlenecked by the the server itself and how quickly it can respond to requests. Sure. So if this approach is really slow, then one alternative is to distribute a file across a network so that you have lots of different options when you need to get that file, right? So in this instance, instead of saying that Lauren is the only person who can serve coffee within a 20-mile radius, and that's why we're all kind of uh, you know, uh, up the creek when we walk into the coffee shop and we see there's 15 people ahead mm-hmm. of us. Instead, we have a coffee shop on every corner. Yeah, and across the street from each other and next door to one another. There are coffee shops everywhere. So really, I just have to walk into any coffee shop. You and can, I can really just coffee. stand in the middle of the street and shout, coffee, right. and someone will bring one for right. you. So that's, that's kind of the idea of the peer-to-peer peer network. In this sense, you have some form of software that allows you to connect to a distributed network where when you participate in this network, you're essentially giving permission to access part of your hard drive. Yeah, you just set aside a little folder on your hard drive that that is okay for this program to access. And then everyone else who is running the same program also has folders set up. Yep. Hopefully they have stuff in them. Right, yeah, because one thing you could do is you could set up this folder and then immediately move stuff out of the folder, and then you're leaching. That's the term. Right, right. right. It's considered a faux pas that in, in sheer, sharing circles just because you're you're not putting anything back out into the community. Right. So with peer-to-peer, let's say you've got this folder that's designated as a shared folder. And when you're connected to the software, anyone who's also connected to the software, when they're searching for a specific file, if your file, if you happen to have that file within your folder, you come up as an option to connect to download from your computer. Now... The problem with peer-to-peer, it solves one issue, right? The the one issue is that if you go with the client-server uh, uh, model, then you are limited by the server. Like, if the server's the only machine out there that has an existing version of this file, then that's the one destination you can go to, and you are stuck with whatever problems right. that might have. In peer-to-peer, you're adding more tubes, but you're not making them any bigger. Right. So, in other words, like, I could... You know, if, if we're going back to our coffee shop example, and we have these coffee shops everywhere, I can walk to the coffee shop that's closest to me. But there's no guarantee that that coffee shop won't have the world's slowest server, or you know, like the, the someone who's just they they are very meticulous about the way they make their coffee, or there might be two or three people in front of me at that coffee shop, and I have to wait for them anyway. It gives me more options. It does not necessarily mean it'll be faster. And the really good software will identify the person with the best connection who has that file. Exactly, yeah. So that way it gives you the the best chance of having a smooth transfer. Mm -hmm. And it's also uh, good to note that this creates more stability when you're trying to get a file. So the other big issue with the old client-server approach is that if that server suffers a problem, if it goes down for some reason, power outage or whatever, then you're stuck. You know, you, you don't you do not get that file. And if you were trying to download a big file and it was maybe 70% of the way done and the power goes out, there's a chance that file could get corrupted in the process. And then you have to start 
all over again. Right, which was a real bummer when peer-to-peer was was really big back in the early 2000s, like late 90s, early 2000s. Late 90s, yeah. Um, Because, you know, it it was about 1995 that modems that could could handle broader band than 14.4 or 28.8 speeds became available for consumer purchase. Mm -hmm. And after that, you know, when, when people started getting connected to the Ethernet was really when peer-to-peer happened. Yeah, and then you you were able to, you know, one of the downsides is that traditionally, with most internet service providers, your upload speed is a fraction of what your download speed is. Right. The reason for that is that ages ago, when companies began to offer internet service, they looked at the broadband that they had available, like the the bandwidth they had available to... The size of the tubes. Yeah, essentially they're saying, all right, here's here's what we are capable of delivering to our customers. How are we going to determine how much is downlink versus uplink? And then they said, well, you know, probably people aren't sending stuff up to the internet that frequently. They're mostly trying to consume stuff, pull stuff down. This was before we were uploading millions of years worth of YouTube videos every second. Yeah, this was this was back when that was not even a, a consideration. So the idea was that, well, you know, we, we can just make it a fraction. Upload speeds will be a fraction of download because you... There's nothing as frustrating, really, as sitting down. Well, this is probably that's that's exaggerating, but it's very <laughs> frustrating to sit down and try and get at some sort of content online and then just see either a buffering thing or a loading screen and it just goes on forever. If you're talking about the old, old days of the Internet, there's nothing like trying to look at a picture of something and watch it slowly load l- pixel line by pixel line. <laughs> and you're just thinking, I have no idea what I'm looking at. I won't know for another 45 minutes. I would I would like the record to state that. I just used I, I just gestured at Jonathan to help you guys understand what he was talking about right. and exactly how ineffective that was. That was a great visual representation on an audio podcast. Uh, yeah, so you know that this approach meant that we suddenly had all these other options, this peer-to-peer uh, approach, and this is the way a lot of those file sharing services back in the day worked: Kazaa, LimeWire, Napster, that kind of thing. They Nutella, were, yeah, yeah, it was all about. Let's find people who have the stuff you want and connect this, create a connection. Connect you directly to them. Yeah. So it almost becomes like a direct phone line in a way where the connection is between the, the host computer and your computer so you can get the, the file. And then, of course, once you have the file, your computer can become a potential host computer. So Now, an improvement on that was BitTorrent's approach. Right. And I think it'll be really interesting to get into the the intricacies of how BitTorrent works. But before we do that, let's take a quick break. Let's get back to the show. All right, we're back. And Lauren, you alluded to BitTorrent. Now, this was a totally different approach uh, in the sense that it was someone coming up with the idea of how can we make these download speeds faster, not just more reliable so that I have more options, but how can I get the stuff I want faster, particularly if it's a really large file? You know, and if you're if you're like Jonathan said earlier, if your Internet connection is maybe not the best and something cuts out somewhere that you won't lose all of the progress on downloading a file right. that you had already made. So this was the idea of a programmer named Bram Cohen. Now, Bram Cohen had worked for several dot-com startups that never really took off. They just kind of failed over and over. And he really wanted to work on something that worked. That was a big uh, ambition of his. Understandable. And, and in 2001, uh, he was also getting really irritated by these problems we're talking about, the slow download speed of large files. 
he liked the idea of the peer-to-peer network, but he didn't care for the execution. So in 2001, he begins work on a new protocol. Now, we've used the word protocol several times in this podcast. Just to remind you, a protocol really is just a set of rules. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a kind of a set of instructions for a computer to follow. So he designed a protocol that he called BitTorrent. Uh, now, this was a an attempt to solve that connection problem um, and the speed problem at the same time. So, you know, peer-to-peer just did the connection. He wanted to do speed as well. So how do you do that? Well, his approach was to create this protocol that would allow files to be distributed in pieces. And as you receive a piece, you are also able to upload that piece even before your file finishes downloading. So I might have a file that's at 27% as it's slowly downloading. That 27% is completely available for other people on the network who are also trying to get that file. You could also get pieces of these files from multiple sources. So as long as everyone had the same file, then you could get, you know, a piece here and a piece there. So imagine that everyone has uh, at least some part of a 500-piece puzzle. And one person down the, the street is giving you pieces uh, uh, 1 through 27, and someone on another side of the street is giving you pieces 43 through 115. And you're just getting, you're getting the whole puzzle, but you're getting them from different locations all at the same time. It's like, it's like if everyone in that, in that coffee house street has a cup of coffee and you just kind of run down and they all pour a little bit into your cup. Right, yeah, it's similar to that. Exactly. Except, except with less like gross spittle <laughs> contamination. And also, there's a pretty design at the top. I don't know how they manage that while you're running down the street like a crazy person, but uh, you know they're talented. That's all. So he was thinking like this would be the the way of solving this problem of of slow download speeds. Now uh, he did not necessarily go about testing this in a very Scientific? Scientific PC way. Did you see how he tested this? I did not, no. Okay, folks, here's how he tested it. He collected a batch of freely available pornographic material and then invited beta testers to see about getting hold of this stuff using the BitTorrent protocol. Stay classy, Cohen. Uh, <laughs> but no, he, he figured that this was kind of a surefire way, and because it was freely available stuff, it wasn't like... It wasn't copyrighted. He didn't have to worry about running into problems with torrent copyright. systems. Have have in fact run into lots of copyright yeah, issues. We'll talk about that toward the end of the show. Yes, you know that's that's a that's a totally different discussion. But yeah, he he wanted to try and test it out, and um, apparently that wasn't considered a terribly auspicious beginning. But uh, he eventually did launch a working version of BitTorrent for the general public in October two thousand two. Now, two years later, in 2004, he had a five-person company working on a search engine that would work alongside his protocol. So he had designed the protocol, but one of the issues people were running into was how do you find the torrent files, which are pointer files? I'll talk about them a little bit more in a second. How do you find these files that then facilitate the downloading process when you're you're actually using the BitTorrent software. And this is via a tracker server. Right. So he create, he worked with this five-person company. Actually, this five-person company worked for him to create the search engine that would look for these torrents to help make this process work more smoothly. Uh, he was also then looked at by a, a little company called Valve. Oh. Yeah. So Valve, no big. Valve is thinking, uh, you know, we want to do a downloadable distributed network approach for our games. We want to have this ability to deliver games to our users that is fast and reliable. 
and doesn't put a lot of pressure Strain on us. on our own servers. Right. We don't, mm-hmm. that way we don't have to build out a whole data center just to support this, this model, this distribution model. So they contacted Cohen and they hired him to work on a platform that we now call Steam. So Cohen was one of the people who helped build that program out. Wow. And it was all because they saw what he was doing with BitTorrent and they said, that's the approach we want to take. And in fact, Valve and Blizzard are two companies that use uh, BitTorrent for a perfectly legitimate w- means of distributing their files. It's a, it's a good time to just mention. There, there's nothing illegal about torrent files. No, no. It's it's just a matter of distribution. It's kind of like if you were to say, yeah, but you can get illegal material that way. You can get illegal material through the mail, but you wouldn't say that means we should shut down the postal service. Right. You might say we should shut down the postal service for other reasons, but not for that one. <laughs> and same sort of argument you could use for BitTorrent. Like to yeah. say, let's get rid of BitTorrent because some people are sharing uh, illegal files. Even lots of people sharing illegal files doesn't mean that the, the tool itself is wrong. Right. The technology itself can be used for lots of really cool things. Like, exactly. uh, yeah, like, like letting people like Valve put games up online without having to buy giant servers or independent artists put their music online. Right. Right. Yeah. And there, there are a lot of reasons their their entire you know whether it's software or video files music files mm-hmm. you know it, there are a lot of reasons why you would want to take this approach and um, one of the big ones is that it, ta- it like you said it takes the strain off the provider right so if i'm a small business or an artist an independent artist I might not have the resources available to me to create a dedicated server mm-hmm. where people can come and download stuff, especially if I'm having to pay lots right. of fees to maintain that. And, and, you know, I mean, you know, for example, if you post some music to your personal website and uh, Neil Gaiman or Will Wheaton link it on Twitter and all of a sudden you're completely overwhelmed. This, by the way, is a complete invitation for both Will Wheaton and Neil Gaiman to tweet about our podcast. <laughs> We would love that. Uh, that would be gorgeous. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, so, I don't. I wouldn't even know what to do with myself. <laughs> I would probably totally flip out. No, I would totally flip out. I wouldn't probably. There, there's no probably there. Yes. Hey guys, it's Jonathan from 2020 again. We're gonna take another quick break, and we will be right back to talk more about BitTorrent. In. 2005, already by this time, okay, the, the BitTorrent's only three years old uh, from when it officially launched. Even by then, Hollywood had taken notice and was right, because, not terribly happy. Yeah, the Motion Picture Association of America and also the Recording Industry Association, Association of, of America, America, that's um, the MPAA and the RIAA. RIAA yes. yeah, is, is like, a, that's music, essentially, and mm-hmm. MPAA is film. Right. Uh, so MPAA, uh, in particular, was concerned because the BitTorrent protocol did make moving large files much easier, which meant that suddenly people were able to upload and download large files like rips of films. They'd take a DVD and rip the film from the DVD and then share it and you would get illegal copies. Or if you were working on a digital film and you were part of a digital film production and you had access to the file, there were movies that leaked out. Mm -hmm. um, Some famous instances of movies that leaked out before they had even hit the theaters Wow, uh, where people were getting hold of pirated copies. And Hollywood was really taking aim at BitTorrent, even though, again, as we said, BitTorrent's a tool. It's not like it was specifically facilitating the illegal activity. However, on November 22nd, 2005, Bram Cohen had a joint news conference with 
the chairman of the MPAA, Dan Glickman, and announced that he had agreed to prevent his own BitTorrent website from linking to torrents pointing to illegally available movies. Now, before that point, their policy was that if they were alerted to a torrent that linked to that was pointing to illegal an illegal material. file, they mm-hmm. would take it down. So that was their that was their policy all all along. But they said, well, now we're just going to make sure that that's much more streamlined. Which, if you followed these kind of uh, these kind of cases, not just with BitTorrent, but with other providers, other platforms like YouTube, for example, there are examples of uh, takedown notices that were improperly um, uh, dealt with. Yeah, improperly dealt with or improperly submitted. Sure. Like people who didn't actually have the rights to something, demanding they get taken down, and then it gets taken down. Um, and then, there, then there's some embarrassing ones. I think Microsoft just recently issued a takedown request to itself. Hmm. Yeah. So sometimes these sort of things can end up being kind of embarrassing. But uh, he was saying that we want to, you know, we don't want to. We want to be on the up and up. Yeah, we're, we want to We're working piracy. with you. Yeah. yeah. So um, today you can uh, find BitTorrent on lots of different platforms. In fact, BitTorrent today allows you to do things like pr- produce content and then distribute it. So it's, it's designed more now to help, like I said, the small businesses, the independent artists, to create content and then even to uh, to enable it so it'll perform properly on things like smartphones, tablets, consoles, creating a huge distribution network that people wouldn't have had access to, you know, 10 years ago. So there are many reasons why it's a very useful tool. So let's talk a little bit about how it actually does what it does. Okay. Now, first of all, it's open source. Right. Which kind of tells you that Cohen wasn't necessarily looking to create like a a, uh, a multi-billion dollar. This company. wasn't a commercial venture. No, he wanted. He really believed in this. And open source means you can see the source code. You can go and get the source code for the BitTorrent protocol. Improve it. Play around with it. Yeah, you can change it. You can make your own uh, product based upon it. It's open source. Um, and then there are sites that house torrent files. Uh, torrent files are not, they don't have any material in them other than uh, pointer information that will point a your software to the right destinations that will have the actual file you're looking for. It's, it's a little bit like that, that pro, like a protocol that we were talking yeah. about, but just in a in a file format. Yeah, it's, and it's kind of like metadata. It's, it's sure. information about the file you want, the information mainly being where you can get it. Like, it's, it's, it's allowing the software that you have on your computer and when you, when you run a program to, uh, to, to go, go out and find the little pieces of this file across the internet, across the swarm right. of computers that contain it. That's good. Yeah. It's, uh, so yeah, you, your basic com- uh, computer that has, you know, the file, the full file on it, you would call it a seed. Mm-hmm. It's a seed computer. Um, and then the swarm is all the different computers that are connected to the network that have some portion of that file and are actively downloading and or uploading that file. Uh, that are also running this this torrent software. Right, right. You, everything has to be working, running the software at the same time. If you stop running the software on your computer, you disconnect from this network. You're, right. probably, you're still on the Internet, but you're not part of the BitTorrent network anymore. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, you, the, the torrent file just kind of points the software in the right direction so it can get these pieces. It gives the, the, compu- the software the information it needs to identify and pull those those pieces of file 
into your computer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Classically, this is all organized by a central server called a tracker, like Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier. Yep. Um, These these days, that's it's it's a little bit um, yeah, a little more complicated than that. But Mm -hmm. yeah, your classic BitTorrent has a tracker server that kind of acts like a, a, a. traffic driver like it's it's the one that's making sure everyone is going to the right place um and you're so you've got your seed you got your swarm you are co- constantly downloading as long as you're connected to this or, or downloading and uploading as long as you're connected to this uh this network the cool thing is with BitTorrent that your download speeds depend upon your participation within the network right you get a rank based on how many files you are allowing the system to upload right. from you. And and or- your and your actual upload speed as well. So mm-hmm. those two things factor in. So if you are being, you know If you are altruistic and you are sharing a lot, yeah, then you, you can also download faster. Right. Because your rank goes up and that means that your download speeds improve and so you don't have to wait eight hours to get, you know, that music file you wanted to get. It'll download in a matter of minutes maybe or or faster depending upon your broadband speed. And the speed of course of the Various computers that are hosting pieces of that file. But, uh, it does mean that you go much faster than you would with your traditional peer-to-peer or client-server relationship, uh, kind of a protocol. You end up getting the pieces of the file you need, and then once you've got all the pieces, you've, you're good to go. So you don't have to depend upon one computer and its connection to the network. You're depending upon the entire network. And anyone who has, uh, pieces of that particular file. Now, like we said, there's nothing illegal about this. This is just a distribution network. So if your file that you're distributing doesn't have any sort of copyright to it, or if it's uh, licensed under something like Creative Commons that gives the person who has the file the uh, the ability to distribute it however they like, Freely, right. then there's no issue there. That's completely legal, and in fact, that might even be the intent of that content. Sure. You know, the person who made it may be, I want this to be shared with as many people as possible. That's why I uploaded it to the the BitTorrent network. Uh, However, it does also mean that it can create an environment that allows for illegal sharing in a way that uh, is a lot more difficult to fight than the client-server approach, right? Right, because it's not located in a single place. You right. can't go knock on one particular person's door and say, you're holding this file because it's spread out over so many people that exactly. I can't, it, it's I, a lot harder to trace back. I can't go into Lauren's coffee shop and tell her that she has to stop serving this one type of coffee. If everyone around her is serving that same type of coffee, it doesn't do any good. Right. Right. Same sort of thing. Yeah. So this is, you know, although, I mean, I don't know, you, you could you could make some arguments that even even the illegal portions of, of torrenting are beneficial in a way, because, you know, first of all, it's it's made the industry um, create its own legal ways of distributing files. Right. They, faster. One of the, uh, you know, I, I think that the direct streaming on like Netflix and Amazon Instant, all that kind of stuff is a direct response. I agree. To torrenting. I agree. And it also means that. No, you know, encouraging the the studios to find new ways to get content to to people who who want access who want to that to content. Want to buy it? Let yeah, me give you my money. Yeah, right? they're they're eager to participate in this. If you make it easy enough and you don't price gouge, then you you're not really inspiring piracy. There's also been several surveys of 
varying reliability that have suggested that people who pirate stuff also tend to be some of the the most prolific shoppers. Right, right. Which, you know, people who are torrenting are probably more likely to buy things online than your average consumer anyway, because they're more computer and Internet savvy to begin with. But, but, you know, but the number that gets tossed around a lot is from a study by the American Assembly, which is connected to Columbia University. So it's more or less on the up and up. Yeah, this is that's a that's a fairly reputable uh-huh. Uh, institution. They, they at least call themselves nonpartisan. They do. They do have a little bit of a liberal slant, I would say. Yeah. But um. But they found that um peer-to-peer file share users purchase thirty percent more music online than non peer-to-peer right, right. users. And then, of course, there's also the argument that a lot of these uh, organizations make, the MPAA and the RIAA, is that. Uh, stolen property uh, directly translates to lost revenue. And we've seen multiple studies, including studies that were specifically uh, uh, funded by the government, you know, there were government agencies that looked into this to see how much, how, how much in damages really is caused by piracy. And the conclusion is that you cannot come up with a number because you cannot say for certain that someone who pirates something would have purchased that something had they not had access to the piracy software. And furthermore, that they're not going to go out and purchase it afterwards, that they weren't trying before they bought it. Right. So in both cases, you don't know if they went out and bought it anyway, and you don't know if they would have bought it. So right. without knowing those two factors, yeah. you can't say that this actually cost anybody anything. Sure. And, and, you know, it's not like a physical copy of something where if I walk into a store and I shoplift, that store is out a physical piece of inventory. When you download a digital file, you're making a copy of something. The original version of that file is still on a person's computer somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So it's not like they have lost that. So with all of these factors, it really means it's so complicated that we cannot put an actual dollar amount. Not that that has stopped anyone from doing so when creating massive lawsuits against either a company that creates the software or the users of that software. Absolutely. And we, we will talk a little bit about that in a future episode. That you'll hear probably in just a couple of days, because I think we're recording it immediately after we finish this one. Yes. Um, we're talking about a, a specific Right, right. Um, My my favorite unofficial study, by the way, is is an anecdote on the effects of purchasing and and free downloads Uh was when uh, Neil Gaiman and his publisher, which I believe in this case is HarperCollins, um, put up a copy of American Gods for free. Wow. And... Just, just free ebook download. Go do it, people. And I, I don't think it's up anymore. I might, you might not be able to find it. I could have just lied to you tremendously. Uh, but they had, they had a free copy up for a certain period of time and sales increased, definitely increased, like appreciably increased in yeah. the immediate future after it was up. Uh, I will say that, um, there, you know, and I've told this story several times in the past, so, I mean, I'm comfortable telling it again. Uh, the, you know, I, I, Definitely was one of the people who downloaded something outside the realm of the law <laughs> because I downloaded a television show that was made in England that was not available in the United States. There was no way for me to purchase it legally. Not that that justifies illegal behavior. It doesn't. So it I'm does. still in the wrong. You know, I'm still in the wrong for uh-huh. doing it. But I downloaded Spaced, uh, the the show that Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg and, and several other people did. And uh, and I loved it. But, you know, there was no way for me to legally get it in the United States at that time. Mm-hmm. As soon as it became available, the day that it came out on DVD. You went and purchased it. I went it. out and purchased it. Because 
I loved it. I wanted to support it, and mm-hmm. I wanted to have a really good copy of it. Um, that's another reason that things that like the studio backed stuff is is getting more popular because the quality tends to be better. Oh sure, and you don't have to worry about like, like about malware, malware being included being in, in the packages. Right? Usually, unless the DRM is also malware. Sony, I'm looking at you. Um, They've been much better recently, by the way. But they I, have. you know the that CD thing still sticks in my craw. I think even classically, though, the, I mean, you know, th- this conversation is reminding me of, uh, you know, how you used to go to nerd conventions and they would have all of these illegal Hong Kong VHS tapes of various um, okay, Chinese so and Japanese films. I also films. did Battle Royal that way, but I bought that as soon as it came available, too. <laughs> and and I think that similarly, that really, that kind of underground black market VHS sort of thing, aside from inciting nostalgia in people of a certain age, really pushed movie companies to say, oh, hey, there's there's a reason, like, there's a reason for us to publish this right. in Pe- America people, or, in, or in other countries this. outside of their original origin. Right. People love this. There is a market for it. We can, you know, if we provide it and we price it properly, we will make money. Like, that's that's the lesson that a lot of these companies have learned. Uh, and people can argue that, you know, these are things that various industries have had to learn uh, in a staggered amount. So, like, the music industry learned it first, and now the, then the, now bo- that, the now book that, industry also, because with the, mm-hmm. the with e-books. e-books, that definitely raised it. But as now. broadband speeds have improved for the common user, now then movies are movies. an issue. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's interesting. I mean, and again, you know, BitTorrent is just a means of distribution. You don't necessarily have to have it be something where you're pirating movies and TV. Uh-huh. Um, there, there is a little bit of a, a fight back. As, as of April of 2013, McAfee had patented a system that identifies pirated content and can prevent users from downloading it by um, either blocking it entirely, depending on how you set up the software. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's through SiteAdvisor. So depending on how you set up SiteAdvisor, it would either block the software entirely um, uh, or block the download entirely. I'm sorry. Or just give you a little pop-up window that says, hey, it looks like you're trying to use a torrent file that is torrenting illegally copied material. Do you really want to do that? Maybe here's some legal alternatives that you could use to download that that on the up and up. And that wraps up this classic episode of Tech Stuff, How BitTorrent Works. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If you have any suggestions for future topics I should cover on the show, reach out to me on Twitter or Facebook. The handle for both of those is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.